If you would, turn to the Bible to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. Chapter 6 is the seven seals, the judgments of God, the scroll being opened. But as you've noticed, chapter 6 only had six. The seventh seal, if you turn, is not until chapter 8. God, in a striking manner, gives us an interlude here with chapter 7 to reinforce the beauty and glory of his salvation, to reinforce the security of the believer, to strengthen us in our hope that salvation is for sure, our blessed assurance that all who come to Christ will never be cast out. Jesus is truly a Savior, and all those who are in Christ are a new creation. The old things have passed, and the new has come, and there is no reversing that. In your bulletin, it says the sealed servants of God. And the reason why is because in chapter 7, verse 3, They are called the sealed servants of God, or the servants of God are sealed, and that's what this is about. And that word seal, S-E-A-L, will be a big word for us today. If you were to go down to the grocery store and grab you a gallon of milk and come home and get ready to pour your milk on top of your cinnamon toast crunch, it really is a great cereal, isn't it? And as you went to open up the gallon of milk, you noticed that the little cap had already been undone, that the little plastic thing that it leaves was already disconnected, and then the little seal thing that you have to peel off that's underneath the cap was missing, you would hesitate for a second, wouldn't you? You'd be puzzled. And then if you gave it a little side eye and noticed that it, the milk was down a little, <laughs> a little bit further than it normally is, you would really be hesitant. And the seal was broken. And for a quick moment, you would be in a moral dilemma, wouldn't you? <laughs> would you still drink it or would you not? Well, we don't have to answer that question today. But you know what it means if something is not sealed. It opens the door for all sorts of things. It alarms us. Could it be damaged? Could there be a problem here? Has somebody tampered with this? There's no seal, which means it's not sure. There's no seal, which means it's not secure. It's not what it's supposed to be. It's not what it was designed to do. The seal does so much for us. Yes, it's the gallon container. Yes, it's really the milk that's the issue. But the seal seems to assure us that it is right, good, everything's fine. This is the idea coming out of chapter 7, that God has a seal upon believers. Read with me in chapter 7, 
As we get into this interlude, but the reason why I'm saying it's an interlude is because chapter 6 are the sixth of seven seals. Chapter 8 is the seventh seal. So there's a gap here. But what makes chapter 7 really so good is that chapter 6 has just ended with a huge question. Who can stand before the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb? Chapter 7 becomes the answer to that question. Read with me at chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed." After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. We're going to stop there. Revelation 7 is an interlude of the seven seals between the sixth and the seventh. Revelation 7 is the answer to the great question, who can stand at the ending of chapter 6? My first point this morning is that very question. Number one, who can stand against God's judgment? Who can stand against the wrath of God? For you kids that are using a listening page, that's number one. Who can stand against God's judgment? That's the question being asked at the end of chapter six from the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, everyone, slave and free, as they flee and run to hide to caves, to mountains, as they cry out, as it says, as they are calling out, They ask the question, who can stand the wrath of God? That's a good question. That's a good question for my life and for your life, and that's a good question for our day, and that's a good question for every day. And that's the type of big question that should be asked in this life. 
especially from fallen, sinful people. Since the six seals being opened are judgments of God, judgments of God against uh, creation and against people, and we've studied those in chapter six, then it's a good question to ask who can stand against this judgment. I do want to point out that at the end of chapter six, these are unbelievers who were not expecting his judgment, did not look forward to his judgment, did not believe that he was returning, that are asking the question now. For when you are faced with the Almighty God, it is obvious that he is more powerful than you. From their perspective, nobody can stand. And in many ways, that is the answer. Nobody can stand before God. But they ask the question, who can stand? And this being a huge question in life reminds us that life creates lots of big questions, doesn't it? Depending on what age you are and depending on what stage of life you're in, we ask different big questions. There are books out there called Life's Big Questions. I want to remind you of a few that we've seen in Scripture. Do you recall in Luke chapter 18 when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a question that people ask. This is a question that good people ask. This is a question that people ask as they think about eternity. What must I do to inherit eternal Eternal life, that's a big question. Or what about in Acts chapter 16, when we hear this question, what must I do to be saved? That question appears more than once in the Bible, and that's a massive question. What must I do to be saved? If we are aware of our fallen condition, if we're aware of our sinful nature, if we have ever sinned and we feel that guilt or conviction, we do right to ask, what must I do to be saved? Or what about in Acts chapter 1, after the resurrection, right before the ascension, when they ask, will you restore the kingdom now? Remember that one? Or what about in Matthew chapter 24, which we've looked back to often, where they ask these two questions together. When will these things be, Jesus? Or, or and, what will be the sign of your coming? Life is full of big questions like that, aren't they? When we raise kids, they ask us all sorts of good questions. Perhaps you remember the question coming out of John chapter 3 with Nicodemus as he kind of secretly approached Jesus at night, him a leader and teacher of the law in the huge Jewish system, a Pharisee going to Jesus to ask some questions, to seek some clarity, and Jesus says, well, you got to have the new birth. You've got to be born again. You've got to have the life of God working in you. That Holy Spirit wind has to have blown on you. Jesus says all of that in chapter 3. And Nicodemus asked the question that a teacher of the Bible should not ask. 
How can a man be born when he is old? If you're in God's religious system and you don't know the new birth, you're off. As Nicodemus was. Jesus asked him a big question back. Are you a teacher of the law and you don't know this? Life is full of big questions, isn't it? I remember when I was in college and I started waiting tables at a restaurant in downtown Greenville, South Carolina named Trio. Cool little restaurant, privately owned. I loved serving there. And as I would serve tables, I would carry a little pocket Bible in my back pocket. And if I had a break or something like that, I'd often sit down and read my Bible. And I remember the day when a coworker walked up to me and he said, what you reading there? And I said, the Bible. He said, I've never read the Bible. What's it about? He said, in just a sentence or two, summarize it for me. And that's a big question, isn't it? That's a good one. That's a good question. Or what about this question? Yesterday morning, I was at men's prayer breakfast here. And another man here in the church told me he played golf with another man this week. And they're in their 80s. And as they played golf together, his golfing partner said, can God forgive all of my sins? That's a real question that many people ask. Because some sins feel so big. Some sins feel so weighty that there seems no way to get out from underneath that burden. Life will often bring us to some big questions. And the question here is as big as it comes. Who can stand against the judgment of God? If you've spent your whole life avoiding God, ignoring God, not discussing God, hoping and wishing that you doing your best will be enough, blindly being optimistic about eternity, when that sky opens up and the trumpet sounds and Christ descends upon earth, You also will ask, who can stand against this great judgment? That's our question here. And chapter 7, as a gift of God to us, is the answer. For those who don't believe, it will seem like this is such a great judgment from God Almighty, the one truly and rightly wrathful, that it would seem like nobody can stand this. This is a miraculous event, a worldwide thing where the Son of God returns in His majesty and every eye will see Him. Every tribe will recognize the glory of God in His return. This is a day that is is coming. And one would rightly think this is too big and too powerful of a moment for anyone to stand. And yet the Bible gives us an entire chapter to say, no, not really. There's a whole category of people, a whole group of people, a whole body of people, a whole nation and kingdom of people 
who long for that day. As we just sang right before the sermon in the great hymn, It Is Well, when we said, the trump will sound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well. That there is a category of people who want that day, who look forward to that day, who long for that day. That was the final point of last week's sermon, and it's the first point of this one. Who can stand against God's judgment? Look with me in chapter 7 as we walk through it a little bit. It begins with the four winds, the four corners of the earth, which is symbolic. It's, uh, it, it, it's showing us the north, south, east, and west. It's showing us the, the whole of it. What it is is this is an interlude because before the judgment of God comes, before the judgment of God comes, which clearly it's coming in chapter six, in, in the sixth trump, in the sixth seal, before it comes, we get this little commercial, if you will, of chapter 7 showing us the security of the believer. And we've got the four winds. You've got an angel at each corner holding it back, it says. Then you've got another angel that is coming up and it's speaking about the seal of the living God. And he tells the other four angels, don't. Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees. Don't bring the judgment up. So there's a quick pause here showing us this awesome encouragement of salvation. Verse 3 says, do not. Now, this idea of the four winds and the four angels and all that might sound a little crazy to you, but I want to remind you that Revelation is masterfully written. This is not a book that is meant to be crazy confusing. It is a book that is meant to be the icing on the cake, the final 66, the book of the other 66, and understand, of the other 65. And understanding the first 65 rolls us right, right into understanding the 66. In the book of Zechariah, listen to this. In the book of Zechariah, we have the four horsemen, the four horse-drawn chariots, and we have the four winds of God working together in a judgment. And you have this here. If you've never read the Minor Prophets and you stroll into Revelation, this sounds like sci-fi. But if we are studying the Bible, then this makes sense to us. Commentator Wilcock writes, it is a new view of the same thing. And the corresponding visions in the prophecy of Zechariah support this identification by linking them together, the horsemen and the winds of God. What we hear about coming uh, in chapter 6 is what we are seeing from the Old Testament being described again. So what happens? Well, before the judgment comes, it says in verse 3, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So there is to be a sealing of the servants of God. Notice, though, that this is an assuring, strengthening, comforting answer to the question, who can stand. When life brings you to the big questions, may you look to God for his real answers. 
Like the golfers playing golf and the friend who asks, can he forgive all of my sins? There absolutely is an answer to that. Absolutely. And I was encouraged to hear our guy say to him, yes, absolutely he can. That is why Christ died, to remove all of our sins. Like the college student reading his Bible at a restaurant when a co-worker says, tell me what this Bible's about, there's an answer to that question. Like we see Jesus' response to the rich young ruler or to the disciples in Acts chapter 1, like we see Jesus' response to Nicodemus, there are answers to life's big questions. Now, there are lots of questions in life we ask where you might just say, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. But to this question asked, in the day of judgment, as many people flee, who can stand? God has an answer. He gives us an entire chapter, and the answer is the sealed servants of God. And that's the second point. Those sealed by God's salvation. That's the answer to the question, those sealed by God's salvation. And we like this word sealed here because, as I used with the illustration of a gallon of milk, it gives assurance and security and strength. Many times, hundreds of times, countless times, you have opened a Pepsi or a Mountain Dew from the gas station or a milk from the grocery store, and since it was sealed, you didn't think twice about it, and you just drank, didn't you? You didn't even hesitate. You didn't even doubt or question or even think upon it because it was sealed. And so it is in the life of the believer, sealed by the power of God, that there is assurance there. It is a strong answer to the ultimate question. Who can stand before the wrath of God? Those who are sealed by God's salvation, safe and secure in Christ. But let's see what it says. Verse 3 says they have to seal the servants of God on their foreheads. Before you ask any more questions, that is completely symbolic. For the rest of your lives, you don't have to wonder and look for markings on our foreheads. That is completely symbolic. There is not coming a day with stamps or tattoos or markers or sharpies of anything, regardless of any fictional book you've read or movie you've watched. It is symbolic. We are sealed through the Holy Spirit that saves us through the work of Christ. We read that in Ephesians chapter 1 earlier. I'll read it to you again. There's an effort out there by some people to try to act like these are two different ceilings, but it's just not right. It's not accurate. It's not good. If you're in Christ, you are sealed, and I will make that point later. Here's what the Bible says. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, now listen to this great explanation of salvation. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee. Does everybody hear that word? Who is the guarantee of our inheritance 
until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That sounds like a ceiling, doesn't it? Guarantee, matter of fact, for sure. And you were sealed when the Holy Spirit came into your life. Your eternal salvation was guaranteed when you were sealed, when the Holy Spirit came into your life. And that happened when you heard the word of truth, when you heard the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed it. Pretty strong from Ephesians chapter 1. So what we see in chapter 7 is John seeing this vision of that being the answer to the question, who can stand? Who can stand against God's judgment, number two? Those sealed by God's salvation. Well, then we get to verse 4, and we hear this number of the 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of of Israel, and there is so much discussion about this. There is so much discussion about this. There are 12 groups of 12,000, which equals 144,000. And all things considered, no matter how you spin this, that's a really, really small number. Really small number. There's some trouble here with trying to make this out to be just a Jewish answer, the way you would think of the traditional Jewish people. There's some trouble here. A couple things. The first is that this list is in a weird, weird order compared to the rest of the listings. Big time weird. Every other time that the 12 tribes of Israel are listed, Reuben is first. He's the, he's the firstborn, and, he, and he's the first, okay? So, so that's a little bit different. Here, Judah is listed first. We know Jesus came through the tribe of Judah, so perhaps that's why. Another thing is that Levi's never listed in the list. That's the, that's the priestly line. He's never in the list, and he's here. Another thing is that Dan's not in the list, and he's always in the list, but he's not here. Another thing is that Joseph and Manasseh are in the list, and that doesn't work because Manasseh is the son of Joseph. You have Joseph or you have his two sons, the half-tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. That's the way it always goes down, but not here. There are lots of things about this list that aren't right. I think that is a way of showing us that this is symbolic. I want you all to hear that this 144,000 is simply the people of God. Jewish, Christian, whatever you want to call it, believer. A believer in Christ for salvation. Now, here's why. In verse 4, it says that he hears this. If you've never heard this before, I want this to really help your Bible study. Verse 4, he heard the number of the sealed. But if you look down to verse 9... It says, after this, I looked at the same group of people, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all, lang from language from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, crying out about salvation. What he hears is a beautiful, unified, complete number that has all sorts of symbolism in it. But when he looks, it's a number that nobody can count. It's the same group from two different perspectives. And this happens a lot in the Bible, and it happens a lot in Revelation. Perhaps the best one is in chapter 5, where he hears about a lion, a conquering lion in chapter 5. 
The Bible says he hears it. He was told about the conquering lion. And when he turns to hear the conquering lion, he sees what? A slain lamb or a lamb as if it had been slain, right? So upon hearing it, this is a conquering lion. Upon seeing it, it is a slain lamb. And no matter how you spin that, those are two really different images, right? But they mean the same thing and nobody questions that. He hears this intact, complete, full number, nobody missing, no question about its security. He hears 144,000. When he turns to look, it is that multitude of saved people that nobody could number. What it is, it is all of the believers throughout the history of the world. It is all of those who have been sealed by God in their salvation. Schreiner writes, the sealing on the forehead isn't literal, but it symbolizes protection granted to those who belong to God. So now we know who can endure the wrath of God, those with God's seal upon them. Now, you may be recalling right now at this point the mark of the beast, and we're not there yet. We don't have to say a lot about it yet. It's coming later. That's a big question, and quite frankly, lots of bad teaching has got people all worked up over the mark of the beast, but you can see how important it is for us to get this right, the sealing of our salvation, as we approach the later chapters in Revelation on the mark of the beast. We will get to that later, but this is setting us up for that. Both instances, again, will be completely symbolic, separating and distinguishing believers from unbelievers. Now, we have a lot in the Bible that helps us distinguish believers from unbelievers, do we not? Credible testimony. Are you trusting in Christ? Do you love him? Are you repentant of your sins? Are you convicted in your sins? Do you bear fruit in your life from the Holy Spirit being present in your lives? Do you live in continual repentance? Do you love? Right? We have that test in the Bible, don't we? The world will know that you are my disciples by the way you love each other. A love for the people of God, a love for the body of Christ, a love for your brother and sisters, even when it is challenging, is a mark, is a sign of a believer. The Bible gives us lots of tests of true believers, and the Bible gives us lots of tests of unbelievers. So this here, throughout the book of Revelation, is a symbolic thing. A mark on the forehead that shows you're a believer and a mark on the forehead or on the hand that shows that you're an unbeliever. But it is symbolic, something that we can recognize as helpful in thinking through the sealing, the security. From our perspective, we can honestly say, are we looking for a number? Are we looking for a big number that nobody can count? What's it going to be like? From our perspective, we can say, well, these people look like Christians, but they may not be. And these people don't look like Christians, but they may, but they may be. Like, we can say all of that. But from God's perspective, make no mistake about it, he knows who are his. They are sealed. And the Bible often uses numbers in a symbolic way. We've already seen this here Throughout Revelation, and 12 is pretty good. A thousand of each of the 12 tribes would be one way to look at it. But the point here is that it is those sealed by God's salvation. And this becomes a very helpful 
interlude. I'm using that word a lot here to see that in the seals being unopened, we have this scary, really, sixth seal. You've got the earthquake. You've got the sun becoming black, the moon becoming like blood. You've got stars falling from the sky. You've got uh, every mountain and island removed from its place. And you've got this great description of people that are all afraid and they're trying to hide from God. That's a real category in life. But what a strong answer it is to know that the same God that will return, the same God that has a a good wrath, meaning he's mad at the right things, he's angry at the right things, people that do not love him or believe in him or, or, or trust him, that that same one that brings the judgment is the same one that brings the salvation. We talked about that last week. He is the lion and the lamb. Before he judged the world, he died for the world. Before he comes in wrath, he took the wrath. Think about that. You might think of this coming day as ridiculous and what, what, what type of God is that? And I don't want to believe in a God that's like that if he's wrathful. And maybe you're okay with somebody never saying that anything's wrong. But it's good to be wrong, to say the wrong things are wrong. It's good to know the difference between right and wrong. And God is the ultimate standard of that. And yet before he displays his wrath, he poured out his wrath on his son. At the cross of Christ, where the sins of the world were laid on Christ. And he judged him in wrath and he crucified him. Turned his back on his son and killed him. So we don't read of this return of Christ and think, what type of a God is that? We understand the whole teaching of the word of God and the great love of God and the amazing grace of God and the God that is rich in mercy and slow to anger and filled with patience. Eventually saying he's coming with wrath. And he's been saying it soon for some 2,000 years and he still has not come. He is more patient than all of us. The answer to the question who can stand is given to us by God when he says, all those that are sealed by my my salvation, all those who have trusted in my son, all those who love the forgiveness of sins, all those that repent and turn to him. If life often gives us big questions, then may you be encouraged here today that God often gives us satisfying answers. Yes, we will ask big questions, but God gives us answers, and answers do come from God. God has revealed his answers to us. He doesn't want us to be out there searching. He tells us himself that he is not the God of confusion. He has revealed his truth to us, and we can know it. We can seek it. We are reminded that the truth is what will set us free, not some false or insecure comfort. We can know him, and we can know his truth, and we can know life, and we can know many of the answers to life's big questions. God has a sealed, God seals believers who are comforted even in judgment. Last week I showed you from John chapter 5 at the end of the sermon where it says, all those who trust in Christ will escape the judgment. 
that a judgment is coming, but by trusting in him, you've escaped that because your sins are forgiven. Commentator Wilcox, speaking to this, says, the Old Testament parallel to this, I already talked to you about Zechariah, but here's a different one. The Old Testament parallel to this is in Ezekiel chapter 9 where a man clothed in linen is told to put a mark upon the forehead. See, again, this is not just something weird in Revelation. This has been here before. He's told to put a mark upon the foreheads of God's faithful people before the six executioners of the city smite it with his wrath. This is Ezekiel chapter 9. The New Testament explanation of it is given by Paul in Ephesians 1. That's what I read. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when we first put our faith in Christ. From that moment forward, our ultimate safety was guaranteed. So when the searing winds begin to blow and the servant of God is found to have been, so when the searing winds begin to blow, the servant of God is found to have been sealed already against their power. The horsemen ride out on their career of destruction, but the church has been made indestructible. Those who will trust in Christ are sealed and therefore will not face the judgment and therefore because, only because of the merit of Christ, they can stand against the judgment. A question that an unbeliever would ask is known, answered, and understood by a believer. The sealed those sealed by God's salvation. But finally, let's talk a little bit more about the sealed. Number three, the sealed are secure and many. Number one, who can stand against God's judgment? Number two, the answer to that, those sealed by God's salvation. But lastly, number three, those sealed are secure and many. And this is a beautiful emphasis here in chapter 7. It doesn't just say, hey, there are some that can stand. It tells us a lot. It's a pretty long chapter. I've cut the chapter in half. It goes all the way to 17 verses. It gets into the beauty of heaven. And you will even see at the end of chapter 7 at verse 17, we have things like they will not hunger or thirst anymore. And it says at the end of 17, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He goes into great detail about how secure they are. But that will be for another sermon. Sermon. But the point is, is that they are secure. And how secure? Well, exact. Now, I said 144,000 is a very, very small number. I don't want you here thinking today that only 144,000 people are going to be saved. The number, that's a very, very small number. But it does show us that it is a number, and think about that. The Bible teaches us in Matthew chapter 10 that God knows how many hairs are on your head. For some of us, that's pretty easy to count. You have very few. But the point is, is that's a lot of hairs, and it takes a wise God, an omniscient, all-knowing God to know something like that. No human being knows how many hairs are on their head. But God does. And if he's able to number something like that, hairs on a head, then you ought to be encouraged that he's able to number heads, people. And he does. He has an exact number that he has not told us. 
From our perspective, it's a multitude that no one could count. But you better believe that in God's mind, he knows exactly who his people are. Exact, secure, known, counted. Not even that, not only that, but named. He knows us by name. He gives us a name. He calls us by name. In Psalm 147, the Bible says that God knows how many stars there are. The Bible says that he has numbered the stars, and yet you've been outside on a night, especially if you're out in the country, and you're like, wow, there's so many stars, I can't count them all. But the Bible says in Psalm 147 that he has numbered every star. And in Psalm 147, the Bible says not only has he numbered every star, but he has named every star. The stars have names to God. This God is so big and so knowledgeable. He's so in control of all things. He's so on top of all things. He's so working in all things. He's so sovereign and big and powerful that we are to see security in chapter 7. You remember 2 Timothy chapter 2 when he says, the Lord knows those that are his. Whether it's thousands or millions or billions or whatever, the Lord knows every single one. Or you might recall John chapter 10, where the good shepherd knows those that are his, and his know him. I remember several years ago, when one of my sons had accepted Christ and gone public with it before the church, and he told his Sunday school teacher, which at the time was Miss Faye Fentress, and we love her, we're so thankful for Elderly ladies that serve so well working with kids week after week, teaching them how to read the Bible, pointing them to the cross of Christ and the salvation that there is. And I remember his Sunday school teacher being so influential in his life and him coming to faith in Christ. Conversations at home, no doubt, with, with, with his mom and dad, but conversations here through e-kids and conversations here through Sunday school teachers. And I will never forget He got baptized here. We were at home one night, and we were just sitting by his bedside, and we were were talking about all that that was, and he told me as a young boy that he'd been writing in his journal. So I said, can I see it? And he said, yeah, I don't know if they'd let me read their journal now, but then he said yes. And as a young boy that had just gotten baptized here in the church, it said... On this date, such and such, I was baptized at my church. I'm trusting in Christ for salvation. And John chapter 10, 28 and 29 say, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And he had written, If I am in God's hand, nothing can get me out of it. I said to him, Who taught you that? Because it wasn't your dad that is a pastor, and it wasn't your mom that is a pastor's wife. Who taught you that? And he said, Miss Faye taught me that in Sunday school. What a beautiful answer. What security that there is. If the Bible wants us to understand that the number of people being saved is so many that you cannot count, 
it might leave the door open to what's really going on here. How many really are there? Nobody really knows who's this Christian, but it is a strong thing to say only from hearing, not from seeing, that John sees a most complete, round, full, exact, secured number of 144,000 so that you and I would know that if anybody is in Christ, he is saved. They are the people of God, the true Israel, and they are secure. Romans chapter 8 says, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If you are trusting in God through Christ for your salvation, nothing, not height nor depth, not death nor life, can separate you from the love of God in Christ. We are so incredibly secure in Jesus. We are to see that from Revelation chapter 7. When you get to the judgment of God and you start hearing the fearful question being asked by those fleeing to the mountains and hiding in the caves, asking that a rock would remove them from God's presence, which it wouldn't, but when they are crying that out, you hear the question asked, who can stand before the judgment of God? It allows you to think for a second, wow, that's a good question. It's crazy out here. And then God himself comes back in chapter 7. God himself comes back in chapter 7 with just a masterpiece of an answer of the security of the believer and the security of all believers. These are God's people sealed by the Holy Spirit. They are saved. And if this is the truth, then security is secure. Like the gallon of milk that you don't hesitate to drink in contrast to how much you would hesitate if the seal was broken, there is comfort in being sealed by God. It is the love of God that shapes us. Listen to this quote from Charles Spurgeon as he speaks to the security of the believer being in Christ. He says, it is impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. Think about this. That if you are loved by God, it's impossible for there to be anything ill or bad happen to you. Ill to him is no ill, but only good in a mysterious form. Losses enrich him. Sickness is his medicine. Reproach is his honor. And death is his gain if he is loved by the Lord. If you are loved by God, you are so secure. You are in his love through Christ. You know the love of God by trusting in Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his son for us, that we would escape the judgment and be saved and have eternal life. And to not believe the love of God is to make yourself outside of the love of God and that we would perish. This is the good news of the gospel and the security of the believer. If you look back to Revelation chapter 7, Verse 9 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Everything in the New Testament teaches us that those who know his salvation are sealed by the Holy Spirit. 
The only way to get to heaven would be sealed by the Holy Spirit. The only way to cry out salvation belongs to God and to the land is by the Holy Spirit. It is only the Holy Spirit that raises the dead soul to life. It is only the Holy Spirit that works in us to walk in obedience. It's only the Holy Spirit that enables somebody truly from the inside to worship God and understand his truth. No one can say Christ is Lord without the Holy Spirit. And nobody can not be in, in, in nobody can be outside. Nobody can say Christ is Lord without the Holy Spirit. This is what the New Testament's teaching us. So when we get a picture of heaven and a number that nobody can count crying out about his salvation, they absolutely are sealed. It doesn't even have to be said there. But what's also sealed is the 144,000. So as one commentator writes, it can be summarized this way. Who will be protected from the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb Those who are sealed and protected by God, the 144,000, the true Israel, the church of Jesus Christ, all one and the same because of the blood of Christ on the cross. Now, chapter 7 sets in between the 6th and 7th seals, and the judgment is still in mind here. And so it is to be a comfort. And may your life and all the questions that come, and may your life and all the big questions that come also be satisfied with the answers of a God who has given security, eternal security, to those who will trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word and for Revelation 7. We thank you, God, for the seal upon believers. We thank you, God, that there is a Holy Spirit working in lives. Father, we pray that it would be a strength and encourage to us to hear you answer the question coming at the end of chapter 6. Father, may we be humble enough to not think we have all the answers. And may we be humble enough to look, for you, to look to you for the answers that you've provided. Father, we thank you for the salvation that is in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.